Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. So, Guy, Nick Mason, source full of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason, source full of secrets. You did, and in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's U-boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never Mm. heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Source Full of Secrets, the Settler Control Tour. Hi, Guy. Hello, Gary. Um, that was the other way around for once. Oh, was it? I didn't know we had a particular way around of doing it. No, we don't. It just um, it just tends to be me first. just because I'm yeah. the annoying bloke who jumps in and, and mm. interrupts. Such is life. Yeah, I'll have to get Such back used to that again won't I when we're back on the tour bus oh mate you're not getting a word in (laughs) (laughs) I am speaking to you today Gary from my new vocal booth which has been built specially basically for rock on tours and it's very fitting that I'm in here today because of course we are speaking to Tim Booth (laughs) (laughs) are you sure it just looks like a padded cell to me are you sure you've not been taken away the doctor said I can leave any time. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, yes, James. That was an unusual name for a band. I thought he was called James for a bit. I'm sure you did too. Until 40 years later, we've all grown very used to James. <laughs> I mean, 40 think years. About it, it's, it's, well, who, who would you say was similar to that? And actually oh. from the same place in terms of band name? Hmm. The Smiths. Which were a big influence on them initially. Yes, so I'm just wondering if there's a slight, you know, bit of play there. But I, listen, this is tiny. I mean, they've they've sold millions and millions of records. They were huge. They are huge, and they have this fantastic sort of ever evolving story in terms of members and what they do, and mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But at Plus, the heart of it is Tim. At the heart of it is Tim. And one big thing worth mentioning is they did. They've done five. That's five albums with Brian Eno. That's Which I think might be a record. I mean, what that's you know that's the kind of. Well, I think they were all records, weren't they? <laughs> Sorry, it's not going to be one of those days, is it? <laughs> I think it already is. But I think um, I think one of those albums was sort of Eno expanded, wasn't it? Really, wah wah. But uh, I might be wrong. These are questions we can ask Tim. I mean, what is it like to work with Eno? I mean, well, and also, he did an album with Angelo Badalamenti. I know. Uh, yeah, Badalamenti. Dum, dum. Um, and, um, and and they are celebrating their 40th anniversary uh, with an orchestrated album of some of their great songs reimagined 
uh, and it's called Be Opened by the Wonderful, which I thought was a really good title. It's a very, very good title, isn't it? And it sort um, of sums up him in a way, doesn't it? You know, he's quite a spiritual guy, I think. He's a very spiritual guy. He's been on a hell of a journey, which, um, I, and which I think is going to be very interesting. So let's get him on. Welcome to The Rock on Tears. Okay, guys, I'm ready. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I've been sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. That caused a big problem in the band, actually. I was having too much fun. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it, and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a pint. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah, it's, it's Get good at yeah. something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! Good day to you. Ah, oh, Tim. Ah, oh, fantastic. With your emotional support wolf perched on your shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What is I that? I thought I'm outnumbered here, so I better get help. <laughs> That's a wee show, a wee show um, sculpture of a wolf. What's a wee show? The wee show Indians were uh, a tribe who uh, they take peyote and they get visions and then they make art. Uh, according to the visions that they have and that they escaped the Spanish persecution. They, they kept moving into higher altitudes and more and more inhospitable grounds. So they've managed to maintain their traditions even throughout the persecutions that came from Christianity. Yeah, and what, what part of South America is that? Well, they moved quite a bit. Um, so I wouldn't be, I'd have to, you know, I'm going to have to look that one up. Um, it's, it's a really good question. Do you want me to look it up uh, now? No, you don't have, I mean, it, well, yeah, yeah, it is interesting. I'm interested in this stuff because I collect um, pre-Columbian feather pieces and textiles as well, a lot of which have right. religious significance. So, oh, so one of, most um, all of which I is mean, from Peru and the Atacama region and Ushma. I mean, Peru is where I, uh, yeah, I love yeah, Peru. Yeah, amazing. Were you on tour? You were on tour there? Yeah, we, we, we went there. We didn't know we had an audience there. So we, the first time we went, we were in Cusco, my wife and my son, we were eating and there was a film crew filming us through the window and we were like, what the hell? And it was on the nine o'clock news in Peru. And when we arrived at Lima Airport, we hadn't come in with a work permit and thinking we could sneak through. And the customs officer goes, Tim Booth. And I go, yeah. From James, and he goes, "Yeah, can I have a photo?" <laughs> and so all the customs officers, you know, all the security guards came round me and did a photo on the way in. And then there was, we got mobbed at the airport, and I've, I've never been mobbed at an airport in my life. Um, and it was like, what the hell? And that was like two thousand and eight or nine. Wow. It was like just a complete utter shock that we had sold records and could play to twelve thousand people in and, Lima. And this is you when know. you just reconvened the band, isn't it? Wasn't it? You'd you'd had a your pretty year much break. five years later, yeah. And we had the same in Mexico. We we'd never been to Mexico. First time we went to Mexico, we booked a two thousand venue, sold out in a week. So we moved up to four, sold out in a week, and we ended up at twelve. And it was like, where have these people come from? You know, it's like I, I don't know if you probably had this that the record companies they couldn't really make money in South America or, or Central America. So they don't tell you you've sold records there because they don't want you to go there because they can't gain. Um, and then you turn up and it's like, there's a whole audience that you didn't know existed. 
do you see think there's something about the folk in your music that that connected with the south american fans maybe maybe um uh, i i i mean i think some of it had been morrissey because he was quite popular uh in peru we were told it was the surfing community had got into james early and they had been a, a very cool community and it had spread from there in chile it was something else i mean it seemed to be just the weird pockets of people had got into our music and then spread it in, in a certain way and surprised us oh, we love it and do you still go you go there now yeah we haven't we, when we bully our manager enough to let us go because there isn't there isn't that much money in it um but we we love going so we bully him every few years and we'll be going within the next two years again you got up with coldplay the other day yeah in manchester uh, wow how was that uh amazing amazing i mean they're very they're a good band of brothers I haven't met many bands that communicate with each other as well as that and and have each other's backs. Really, like, there's a lot of love there. And at the Q Awards in England, I gave um, Best Newcomer Award and Coldplay won it that year. And Chris came up to me. I thought he was drunk, but actually he said he, he doesn't drink. He was shy. And Guy, the bass player, basically told us that... Um, he says he's a singer because of you. And the thing is, Tim, he, he kind of owes you, doesn't he? Really? I mean, let's face it. You know, <laughs> so much of that of his performance as an artist. I'm talking about Chris and the way he moves, and and quite a lot of the feel of that band was you 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 sense James in that and your work. I mean, that's really kind of you to say so. But I, I feel they're kindred spirits. I feel they made better uh, business decisions than we did. Um, we were brought up with the indie police, you know, and the enemy yeah, and, yeah. and all those attitudes yeah. to record companies and attitudes to fame and success and stadium. And so we kind of avoided success and shot ourselves in the foot in numerous occasions in the name of being artists. And um, and sometimes it was being artists and, and we did made some good choices and sometimes it was being brats um, and, you know, time you know you you sort through that later and work out which was the brat moment which was the artist moment Coldplay just made the right decisions and just kept on flowing with a sense of charm that that escapes me um I'm not as charming you know Chris is just like I I told him this I said you know you're the you're the holy fool in the tarot deck you know you you're the number 22 not not the zero fool at the beginning of the journey but the one at the end that's attained a great deal of wisdom and humility um because he is he's just such a innocent in some ways he's so beautiful um i had a fantastic time with him um and have done whenever i've met him but i think um, gary's point is right which is that because james's gigs are, are famously and always have been this incredibly communal sort of experience aren't they it's you know it's shamanic shamanic if, if you will uh, yeah. yes yes you've done your research gentlemen <laughs> it must be so weird for you it's like you know we all have our own personal taste in music and you, you then you must be interviewing tons of bands of which they're not in your wheelhouse of of music that you might personally have liked. Tim, I've only bought James records for the last forty years. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, no, I mean, listen, we love all kinds of music, and that's why we. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, because and, and, what what is funny from doing this research is because you and I met. Uh, I don't think it was particularly auspicious meeting anything, but but knowing as much as I do about you now, it seems an incredibly inappropriate place because we were introduced by Durga McBroom at Brown's nightclub. 
which I'm okay. guessing would have been uh, when you were working with youth. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. And yeah, we, we Durga came in and sang on one That's of our right, songs. Yeah. Um, we were quite close. Um, and it, oh, lovely woman and her, her, boy, her boyfriend at the time. Yeah. Oh, oh <laughs> so Jason, funny. yeah. I was, I was taken to Brown's three times in my life. I'm not a really a, well, you know, that's what I, this comes across very much. <laughs> insane. You know, like when Hacienda opened, I would go at nine o'clock when it opened. No one was there. I danced for two hours. And when people turned up at 11, I'd go home. Because um, that really wasn't my thing. You know, you know? Brown's is, is, that was Blitz Club. You know, the, the our, our, you know, Steve Strange's you, club. That was, Brown's was the same venue. Was it That's what it venue? became. It became Brown's, wow. which was much more sort of commercial. But I sort of go back to what you said about Coldplay and take making some different decisions, because I feel that what you know they have obviously set out with totally commercial ambitions. You you like a lot of bands have sort of swung to and fro between commercial and art. And art, it seems to me that it's much more serious what you do. It's much more you're pushing boundaries lyrically, so much more. Um, expressing yourself as a songwriter in ways that are quite unique sometimes. I mean, in defense of Coldplay, though, I'll, I'll just say time will tell on on what their how, how music lasts. You know, as a punk, I thought Rumours by Fleetwood Mac was a crap piece of yeah. music. And then, you know, years later you come back to it and go, oh, my God, that's great. And you realise your tribalism was getting in the way, oh, yeah. uh, you know, and... I think Coldplay's got some bangers <laughs> and some amazing songs. Um, and I, saw, I witnessed that live in the live arena. You know, we couldn't play to 70,000 people and reach the far corners of the Etihad Stadium like they do. Uh, they've, they've developed some incredible techniques to make everyone feel included. Sorry, I'm, but anyway, I'll come off Coldplay and big, big ass. Um, yes, I've always felt, um, well, I've always I think, you know, I, I joined James, first of all, they saw me dancing. This is something I was going to be my next question, I'm sorry, which is that uh, at that period, you know, people had dancers in bands, but it was the singer's mate. Like, well, like Chaz from uh, Madness. Yeah, or Bez, or what, you know, you, you, it was... It was well, Bez is a bit I, later, my, though, I want my it? mate in the band and he can't really do anything. So... Hey, I, hey I'm pre-Bez. <laughs> yeah, we inspired. Yeah, way before. They, they just saw me, you know... My self-expression in those days to express all my frustration and rage and confusion at the world was dance. I would just, I was sent, I had an inherited liver disease and all through my teens, I was bright yellow with jaundice and no adult went, maybe we should get her, take him to a doctor's. There's nothing, did um, no one at school say anything? Did no one think you needed medical help at school? No. I was sick all the time, and also it brings a really strange mental state with it. I thought I was crazy. Um, I was convinced I would end up in a psychiatric hospital because uh, it, it, it has a whole psychology that goes with jaundice, which is quite bitter and dark and, and not good. And I, I died of it when I was 21. I actually um, mm -hmm. stopped breathing in hospital at Killingbeck Hospital. Killingbeck Hospital in Leeds, what a great name. And the nurse revived me. And the turning point was the doctor said to me, he said, it's like you had hepatitis C last month. And he said, Western medicine has nothing for you. He didn't say it's incurable, which is what 
another doctor might have cursed me with. He said, Western medicine has nothing for you. And so I went, oh, right. Chinese medicine, acupuncture, um, meditation, anything I could get my hands on. Basically, all the weird stuff that, you know, everybody was ridiculing at that time, mm -hmm. I went and did. Shamans, the works. You know, I've worked with so many shamans. <laughs> and they've done many, many strange things to me at various points in time. Was it a um, cure for you? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it cured me. All of it did. I mean, I, I, I can't quite tell which did which. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I was meditating 10, 12 hours every weekend, two hours a day. I was celibate, no alcohol, no drugs, vegetarian for three and a half years, celibate in a rock band, singer in a rock band. Yeah. There aren't many of those Was around. that advice you were given? No, I got into, well, we had a member of the band who was struggling with addiction to, um, it was just dope, but it was, he just was one of those people that couldn't smoke weed. It sent him down there. Mm -hmm. uh, he ended up in a psychiatric hospital. And Jimmy and I and the band, we loved him. And so we thought, let's drag him into meditation. We didn't know anything about meditation. Let's drag him into meditation. Maybe he'll get an alternative high that he, he we can get him off weed. And um, unfortunately, it didn't work for him. But me and Jimmy got hooked. And so we were like, there were four of us in the band at that point, And we were, can I say, meditating motherfuckers, you know. Can I swear on this podcast? Yeah. Is that, is that, we were <laughs> Only meditating. if it's associated with the word meditation. Oh. <laughs> and it alliterates um so yeah we were we were crazy meditators and of course keeping it completely secret because we realized that press would destroy us if they discovered that in 1983 84 yeah. um the indie police um would be on us like a shot <laughs> um so we only came out about meditating about 15 years ago when it became a little bit more mainstream um but was there a sense of because of you, you know, your yellow period, really, you should have written that song, really. You? <laughs> you're yellow, man. <laughs> but, but was there a sense of otherness that created who you Mass are now? Yeah, I think so. I, 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 I feel it was a blessing. I feel, I feel it's probably the source of my creativity. I think the, I think when I died, <laughs> I think something really rebooted. You know, I hadn't really sung uh, at all. And suddenly the band were asking me to sing and I hadn't written lyrics and their lyrics were so appalling that I had to write lyrics. You know, the first song they wanted me to sing was, I have a way with words, me being so good looking. I have a fantasy. I want to be raped by a woman. Oh, well, uh, God. And they wanted me to sing it. And I'm like going, I, I'll sing for you, but I've got to change those words, right? Wow. You get, you're and, getting this down, I, Gary. And this is amazing. <laughs> I'm making good use of this already. And um, there were 16-year-old yeah, yeah. kids. You know, there were street kids. I mean, there was a lot of fighting going on. I was relatively posh university, just started university, you know. And, um, and I was suddenly in the middle of this hardcore band. You know, the first singer ended up in Strange Ways for GBH, the... His carper ended up in Strange Ways for GBH. Wow. You know, it was it was it was quite an interesting band to parachute into. Yeah, but you had died. Um, that's quite that's pretty good credential. I had died. That's my credibility. <laughs> there you go. But what you were saying with writing lyrics, because what's what's become the but I mean, and this is 
I think I love about James is it seems to be this ever growing, ever sort of well growing and shrinking evolving mutating group of musicians and your work is very much based on improvisation and it's so do your lyrics come from from that are they fed out of the music yes basically over the 40 years that we've been going usually about four of us will go in a room now it's in the last 20, 30 years it's been stick on a drum machine really random drum machine i use um funk box on my iphone often and do a disco beat you know 132 or something and we'll just improvise. Nobody brings anything in and we're all feeding off each other and we'll do six hours of improvisation and in that time create six to ten pieces of music uh, and not judge them at all, just completely follow each other and have no idea whether it's good or not. And we'll do, for each album, we'll make about 115 pieces of music like that and then each of the writers then chooses one of those jams to work on to shape it into a, a demo and then then we bring the writers then bring it back to each other and then we work which ones we're going to make into an album um but the lyrics are yours the, the lyrics are mine always um and i'll and i often improvise some of the lyrics in that jam so oh, sit down i had oh sit down in the first jam um a song called many faces you know, there's only one human race, many faces, everybody belongs here. That came in the first jam. Um, so it gives me then a hint of what the song is meant to be about. It's almost like I, I treat it as the song is telling me what mm -hmm. it wants to be sung about. Um, and I, I get a few lyrics in that first time and then I might improvise some more on my own when I've got a backing track. Or I wake up often, I wake up four in the morning. Used to be, I used to write late at night, but then in the last... 25 years i think my muses have moved to australia or something and they tend to wake me at four, four in the morning with words you know and i'm just lying there going oh but are really they does it tend to be storytelling for you now or is it still personal or is that because of your it seems to me your self-healing that are those more difficult uh, lyrics about about your own journey are they not there anymore and it's a, it's about someone else because now I live in bliss. Well, I'm I'm, I'm wondering. I mean, harmony. Um, no, it it varies. Uh, it, 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 there's always. I don't think any writer can get themselves out of the picture. I think it's probably impossible. Yeah. But it really varies, and I often don't know. I often look at this lyric and go, "What on earth is this?" And I often, I'll try and change bits, and they'll refuse to be changed. And then a year later, as the song comes out the realization of what the song is about comes at home. Sometimes they come true, which is a bit scary. Oh, no, yes. Um, this is someone I want to get to. Apparently, you, you've got quite a, I would say, scary um, sort of rep as a bit of a soothsayer with your songs and that things do tend to happen <laughs> that you write about. Yeah, they do. I, I mean, it's been really, I mean, I know that sounds a bit wanky, you know, and there's, there's no getting out of it, really. I, 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 as so I first discovered, I don't know how to, well, anyway, I, I'll tell you one story, which was we did the song Blue Pastures and I was writing this, it, we improvised it in 20 minutes and I got a ton of lyrics, which was unusual to get a ton of lyrics. This was, I probably got half the lyrics and it was clearly a story about a man deciding to walk off into the snow and in the mountains and lie down and, and commit suicide. But it was a peaceful song. It was like he was choosing to do it in a very kind of graceful way. 
and we then improvised it again a bit later and I got the second half of the lyrics complete intact which was unusually quick like I can't think of many other songs I've done that with and it was this story of a guy going off and lying down in the snow and committing suicide and often these things come true for me and I so it made me a bit n- nervous about what you know what was going to happen and you know how my life was going to collapse in the year before the record comes out and basically, I was living with my best friend in Manchester. And the week before this song came out, or two weeks, her mentor walked out into the Lake District and lay down in the snow and committed suicide. And she'd heard the song. And she took the song to the funeral and they played it at the funeral before it was released. And the wife rang me up and said, how did you know my husband? Because I'd written details in there that, she completely recognized what he'd chosen to do and how he'd done it. And, you know, it wasn't like an awful suicide thing. It was like time to go kind of thing. And, um, and so that, that was one of the strongest ones that came through, but it happens on every album. There's at least one or two where they come true in a way, you know, the one about a car. Oh yeah. There was a car crash one, wasn't it? Yeah. There was a car crash one, which I normally I would not put in, but when I wrote the lyric, I thought I see this in Topanga and it was a, again, a, a beautiful song uplifting. It's like, remind me to breathe at the end of the world, appreciate scenes and the love I've received. It was like this guy coming on a head on car crash around a corner. And so he's, he's just, he's just trying to remind me to breathe at the end of the world, appreciate scenes and the love I've received. It was a positive uplifting song about dying in a car crash. So you have a bit of a weird attitude to death having, died once um and so i wrote it and, I, and we were leaving topanga so i thought i can afford to leave this in because we're not going to be here it's, this isn't going to happen to me <laughs> and we went to berkeley for three months and then my family was so missing topanga they we, we decided to move back to topanga and i said to my wife you know i'm really scared about this song now <laughs> now i'm not happy about this and sure enough they then the record company chose it as a single which magnifies its impact and two weeks before i'm driving with my family on the freeway at 70 miles an hour in packed la traffic on six lanes you know and some screecher breaks and the guy hits us from behind and we are knocked across five lanes of traffic and somehow we don't hit a single car and we just end up on the hard shoulder. While it's happening, it all went in slow motion. I looked around to my son at the back and said, are you okay? And he said, yeah, I'm okay. I looked in the mirror and saw the guy hit us spinning like donut and all the other cars like almost rearing up over him like wild horses trying to break. And we gently cruised to the hard shoulder and sat there. You know, it was like a miracle that we weren't hit or hit one of the cars across the other lanes of traffic. And that so, was by yeah, Topanga. So I will never write about me, you know, as something like that happening again. Do you know me. what I think, the, what you have though, in your ability to improvise story and let the story grow in, into something with the, with the music and sort of enhancing that is, I think is probably why you're uh, drawn to acting. Uh, actors need that, story imagination working i think songwriters generally are writing about snapshots of information they're not really tales 
folk songs were, ballads were for sure. And I know that's part of your background too, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's, there's... yeah, it's like Big Bad John and and Val Dunican's Paddy McGinty's Goat were, yeah. the and they were stories that made me laugh. And you know, pulps, common people, and I, I've always loved narration. And so it's for me, it's if you start writing a lyric, follow the story wherever it leads. Generally, follow the story. And that I find fascinating. I've just written a novel, actually, which will come out next year. Um, it's taken me 10 years, and it's um, about a fucked up singer, of course. I figured, you know, write what you know. and um, uh, But it's a ghost story, and it's a love story, and it's a, you know, I just kept following the story. You do realise everything in your novel's going to happen, don't you? <laughs> I, I, it better not. <laughs> it really better not. <laughs> um you know, and some of it has, you know, some of it was about my life and some of it what I witnessed. And, you know, I put characters in a room thinking they were going to have a certain argument and go out this door and they would do something completely different and go out that door and then fuck in the bedroom, you know, and it'd be like, what the hell just happened? And and you just follow the story. It's just thrilling when that happens. Well, when Pinter when... writes, you know, he, he wrote or wrote, you know, he would he would have a blank stage and. A man enters. He never knew where yeah. that man was going or what he was doing, but man enters. Um, but... And I get you talking about acting. I loved your acting, by the way. I really did in the Cray film. Oh, it was thank you. really, thank really you. good. And thank uh, you. yeah, it was uh, well done on that. It's like you should be doing a lot more of that. Well, yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I, I still do. And uh, and I've, I really enjoyed going backwards and forwards between music and, and, and doing that. The, the thing is, it's a very different performance because you are speaking other people's words you are a, a fulcrum for someone else's ideas um very much what you do in james is you know maybe or maybe you don't see it like that maybe you see no, your lyrics as someone else putting them inside you which is what kind of what you were saying i think the best ones feel like i'm tuning into something the worst ones feel like tim booth got in the way um because you know who you are up. too much or you know the ego gets in the way or it's like you know you, you it's like I'm i'm a better writer at 4 a.m. in the morning because I'm half asleep. So I'm writing from, you know, a place of like half conscious, half unconscious. I think all the rich stuff is in the unconscious of of humans. I think, you know, we put way too much value on personality and ego and this little bit. And and actually this little bit, it has a, you know, generally has a pretty miserable time. <laughs> what I love about, say, quantum physics is that they now talk about, you know, dark matter and dark energy make up about 97% of the universe and 3% is is what we see. And I have a feeling the personality is about those kind of percentages. It's the 97% the, the is what we experience in times of altered states, however we get to those altered states. And the 3% is what we tend to live in, um, in our rather messed up world that we are destroying at an in ever increasing rate um, through our own. I did have a doctor say to me the other day that it was ninety ten. It was actually ninety unconscious. And Lovely. I guess, I, I guess, if the unconscious mind is you writing, then that ten percent at the front—that's your editor, isn't it? And sometimes the editor wants to get in the way too much and wants to, you know, oh, cut this out. It's a bit too much, and you've got to have that battle in the in the office, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Especially. You know the internal indie indie police. You know the the one that believes in the artist tortured artist myth. 
um, believes that, you know, there has to be some measure of pain um, or, or some, I, I definitely still have that somewhere in me and I have to watch that. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. Let's talk about those early days. You know, I'm, we were saying, I, I did met, uh, ask earlier, I don't think you heard it, I, was Dylan in your mix? Because it seems lyrically that, that that was something. Also, I'll drop another name and you can answer both. That first album, there's a lot of Sid Barrett in those lyrics. Huh, interesting. I never really got the Sid Barrett thing. I, it was a bit before my time. And so that that wouldn't be there. And Dylan wasn't there. I think it was like Patti Smith and Val Dunican. Well, you you tell a wonder, a, a fantastic story on this because my father's death is very involved in my musical awakening as well. So you have a fantastic story about um, this sort of musical epiphany you have to do with Patti Smith. I think I became a singer. You know, you, you don't really know why you became a musician. I, I, I suspect if you two do, to some degree, it's like uh, maybe you have stories no, too. No, my, my parents bought me a guitar for Christmas and I became a musician. What, what I age? I, 11. I had no idea why they bought it for me. Interesting. Well, my dad bought me a bass guitar and then he died. And so I now know in the fullness of time, that was the last thing he said to me. So here I am. Oh, so yes, I was in an English boys Victorian boarding school um, which I hated and was sick at 
and I was called out of my study during homework period to see the housemaster and who I hated and didn't like me. And um, he says, your mum's on the phone and she put, he puts her on and she says, your dad's going in for an operation tonight and because he's so old, they're, they're not giving him much chances of coming out of it. So he's likely to die tonight. And I thought I should ring and tell you. And I go, can I come home? Let know you, you know, four or five hours away from home. It's seven, eight o'clock at night, you oh. know. And it was like, thanks, mum. How old are you? Um, Sorry, how old are you? I'm not 16. And I'm not going to cry in front of this guy. And I kind of went back like a zombie to my room and you had to finish homework and then there was prayers and then you have to be in your bedroom by quarter to 10 and lights out 10 o'clock and silence at 10 30 and you know i'm not gonna sleep and i sneak down through the corridors and i go into my study and i put on a cassette of horses which i'd only heard briefly two weeks earlier and thought she can't sing you know that's what a weird voice I, I don't know if it's, I don't think it was the first song, it's probably the third song, but it was his father died and left him alone on that New England farm. Although long black funeral cars left the scene and the boy's just standing there as if someone had spread butter on all the fine points of the stars because when he looked up, they started to slip. And I listened to this 10 minute improvisation about a boy losing his father and I, it just did me in, in a way that nothing had hit me like that in my whole life, I don't think. And I think unconsciously, probably I made a decision at that point that I had to become a, a singer and be able to reach out to people, you know, in 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 their loneliness and in their pain and in whatever whatever state they're in. There's something else. And, there's something else in there. In that, um, from these various stories that you've told us you can either believe that there's some greater force that's guiding that or you can say that you are very good as a person at drawing dots between disparate things creating a line and finding connections that is in essence what makes any great poet any great writer they they need to find you know they're, they're drawing in the net of a very you know we, we don't have many there aren't many things out there to grasp at, but sometimes they seem wide and wide apart but you're drawing those lines between those things that seem wide apart sometimes yes you know but i'm also a believer in pro noia um which is the belief that the universe is conspiring to help you and if you if you just know how to say yes to it so i i do believe i've been very blessed with almost like a paper chain of help are guiding me along the way in different ways. And, and that means as mundane as Patty, finding Patti Smith. Not That's not mundane. But Doris Lessing, the writer, she was a big influence on me. I, I read most of her books, which was unusual, I think, for an 18-year-old boy. Yeah. Because she was a feminist, um, you know, a South African um, communist who had to flee South Africa, anti-apartheid, you know. And, and then she became a Sufi mystic. She's an amazing writer, one of my favourite favorites of all i sit down was written as a thank you letter to her and patty smith it's quite a it's for, quite a, a lonely song though isn't it really in many ways ironically very good yeah it is it, it's a song about yeah reaching out to be alone and yet 
that's the beauty of James is we often turn that's why I can write such often dark lyrics within a very uplifting song you know we're not Joy Division where I love Joy Division but I can only listen to that record once a year um, you know because it's so intense and, and upsetting in some ways James is like there's some pretty bleak lyrics hidden in some pop songs that we've written um, and we love that clash Juxtaposition. Um, uh, and I've ruined well, it's some like of the, the, pop songs. the first, <laughs> the first verse of sometimes. Sorry, the, sorry to interrupt, but the, the first verse of sometimes, which which sounds fantastic and the imagery is brilliant, but when you explain, it's actually it's a boy who's gone out to kill himself through, in a thunderstorm. To be wanting to be struck by lightning, yeah. which is something I've always I'd always wanted to be struck by lightning. As Very a boy. Frankenstein. It, <laughs> yes. it sounded like a. Oh, Ooh, that's interesting. interesting. Yes, yeah, so, so yeah. it's almost like to be brought to life rather than to be killed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah which is, yeah. I yeah. think so. I think, I think for me, death and birth. You know, the two certainties: bookend at one end and bookend at the other. So I can't help write about both. You mean we we've got these two great women now who've joined the band, who've been with us for about five years. Drummers, singers, guitar players. They they can play piano. They can, they're multi instrumentalists, and they've really changed us. They've like. They've, they've created a whole new phase of James that we're in right now that is the most joyful phase we've ever been in. And they're feminists, you know, and she, Chloe went, that's song Gold Mother, 1990. You, you wrote about childbirth and, you, you know, about how women journey to the edge of death in search of a child. And it's an eight-minute improvised song, which is a series of contractions on purpose uh, about a woman giving birth. A gold mother was the album, and um, and it's like, what on earth made a young boy write a you know a song about childbirth? And I don't know. I was just following the story, you know. Well, I do know. Yeah, my wife did. My partner at the time gave birth, so but she was but she hadn't given birth by the time I wrote the song. Weirdly enough, so again, you know, a little bit ahead of itself, you know. And we wrote songs about the shoot to kill policy in Northern Ireland and global warming in the 80s and you know i realized what a weird lyricist i've been that separated us from the other indie bands or the Britpop scene we were linked with the Britpop scene we were linked with baggy you know we were linked with the smiths because we started before the smiths and james um, james we if were, you think about it is the uh, we mentioned this in the intro is the most similar name in the same of that generic name well, at the time there was band that was named with a name and we thought it was highly original and the smiths came out about six months later and we were like, damn <laughs> what was where, where do you think you found your affinity though was it with the smiths was it with was it with baggy was it there's something in the in the zeitgeist of manchester isn't there you know i mean we had an affinity with the smiths definitely uh you know morrissey was you know teetotal vegetarian i was at the time the same um and i think he was pretty celibate in those days and so we had a, a strong connection uh, that was really beautiful. And the band were very generous and loving. It was a very lovely band to, to be taken. We were taken on tour. They covered one them. of your songs, didn't they, as well? They, the only song they ever covered was the first song we ever wrote, which was really bizarre. Um, I remember Morrissey asking me for the lyrics. And I gave him the lyrics and watching his eyebrow arch as he kind of <laughs> heard these very strange lyrics. Uh, and um, so that was, you know, we felt very honoured by them. Morrissey said beautiful things about us. Um, 
um, said we were the best band in the world, you know, publicly and went on to say it about a few other bands later, but um, slightly spoiled it, but um, mm -hmm. but it was still very sweet of him. And, and then New Order took us on tour and the Smiths wanted to take us to America and we bailed because our meditation teacher was coming to Manchester and we wanted to do that instead. Um, so How that do was you feel about that decision now? <laughs> How do you think? <laughs> no, the, 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 the truth is actually we weren't ready. We'd, we'd, the guys had nicked their instruments, literally stolen them, and they'd, they were self-taught and we'd, no one took lessons. We wouldn't allow anyone to take lessons because we didn't want to play like anyone else. And so we had these all, all these naive, innocent, pig-headed ideas. And if we'd gone to America that early, which was two years into the band's existence, it would have, well, three years, it would have been too much for us. So we took seven years learning our craft before we broke. Really, yeah. You went through you went through Factory Records and Sire, didn't you? And then Sire, um, and, and you know we got stuck on Sire because um, I'm, I'm I'm thinking of telling you a very outrageous story. Go on, might... come on. This is where but people I... tell outrageous stories, right here. I'm not sure, <laughs> but I don't, think, I don't think I'd be sued for it now, and I could I could back it up. Sire Records had a casting couch aspect and we whistle blew on it because they tried to somebody in that company took out um a video director who's going to make a video with us and said you know you can make the record handed them record over a meal and now come upstairs and fuck me and the guy went i'm married i, I, I can't fuck you and uh, i can't do this and they snatched the record back and said i'll see you never make a another video in this town again, literally said those words. And the guy rang us a few months later after we'd made the vi video with someone else thinking he bailed on us, weeping about the story. So I felt it was genuine. So we rang up and confronted the heads of Sire and they didn't release our album for a year and a half and nearly bankrupted us. Um, so that was the story with Sire. Um, and nearly sunk James, we all had to like, get jobs, day jobs and do animal experiments. And you know, we ended up doing a, a medical experiments because that was a good way of earning money in a short period of time and then being able to tour. I, I, I want to talk well, about Eno because, you know, I, yes. I've never worked with Eno and I would love to work with Eno. And I just wondered, was were you very open about how to work in a different way with him or was he more was he compliant to, to your usual process? Compliant to our usual process and some. Yeah, how do you talk about Brian Eno? I mean, we made five albums with him. And I just want to say, is that a record? I mean, the fact that uh, you've got you got five people are lucky have. to get one or two. You got you five. Two, yeah. You two did it. He's he's overseeing the one we're making right now. He's he's like we're doing it with Leah Abrahams, who's wonderful. But Brian is our overseer producer who, that we will go to if we have any problems. And he's done a few songs in the. And the last records, last few records, every so often we get a problem song and I'll go to him and say, Brian, what's wrong with this song? We know it's stuck and he'll just do a little bit of magic and that's it. So he's, um, he's good at structure. Um, no, actually, some weird sound in the background that gives it a whole new context. It's context. Like we had a song called Nothing But Love and it sounded like a 1950s song. And we took it to Brian, we said, sounds like a 1950s song. And he put this little arpeggio in the background. That was all it took. 
it just gave it a recontextualized it and suddenly it didn't sound like it was written in 1956 and um it was just it's he's just brilliant it, well, it's it's one of his oblique strategy cards. You saying is one of your favourite things, isn't it? Which is honour thy error as a hidden intention. As a hidden intention. Yeah, and that's our discussion, mm. you know, Gary, about whether there's. I mean, Brian is one of my closest friends still, so you know, I see him all the time. But what did I you want I'm... from him when you first went to him? It was laid, wasn't it? That was the first one. We we actually went to him on Stutter, our very first album. Yeah. Uh, every every band went to him. I mean, you know, I, Chili Peppers would, you know, Flea would say, "How does he get to work with Brian Eno? We can't. We've been trying for years." Basically, eventually, I wrote a personal letter to him, sent him some demos, and thought, you know, again, we won't hear anything from him. And the phone rang at nine a.m. about two weeks later, and it was Brian, you know, <laughs> and we had a conversation about perfume, pornography, the state of the world, the ecology. And then after about an hour and a half, he said, I think I'd like to make your record. And he said, that song, sometimes, have you got lyrics for it? Because I'd the demos had gobbledygook, me making up words and phonetic sounds. And I didn't have any lyrics for that song. I said, no, I haven't got any lyrics for that song. Yet uh, I, I write them as I go along. He said, that's the song, you know. So he came to work with us, man. Oh my God, we had our minds blown. I mean, he just, his ears are astonishing. He hears things that even when you played them, you aren't hearing. Uh, he wanted to start work at 10 every morning and we were like, oh, we kind of start yeah, at 12. Because in his diaries, he gets into his studio at 4 a.m. So he, we would give him- well, I would we, have had you down as an early morning person, Tim. I mean, you're, come on, you're, you know, you're not you're you're back peeled, being peeled after, off the bar, are you? But after the four to six bit of writing, I have to then sleep till about nine to make up. <laughs> um, and, you know, a voice doesn't wake up early. It takes a while for vocal oh, yeah. cords to warm up. So what Brian said was we'd recorded all our improvisations on shitty cassettes. They sounded like mud. You know, they sounded dreadful. And Brian said, well, I'm going to listen to your recordings. And he'd sit there with headphones on making meticulous notes. And he'd come to us and say, you know, we had the songs we thought we were working on. And he'd say, you've missed one. There's 30 seconds here at five hours and 50, where there's just 30 seconds that there's a wonderful song waiting to, waiting to be written. And he'd play it back to us and it would sound like sludge. Like, and, he'd, and we'd try and play it. And he'd turn to the drummer and say, no, no, the beat goes like this. And no one no no one could hear what the beat was doing from these cassettes there were seven people making a racket on a room recorded on a sony walkman right bad sound and he could hear what every instrument was doing and he'd take that 30 seconds and that 30 seconds became a song called dream thrum on uh laid and it's a beautiful little song and it's it, it and it, and we he just you, within days we were just it was like we'd found the producer we'd been looking for all our lives. It was like before then, producers had been a you know pretty hit and miss experience. Does he talk about and, his? Does he talk about his experiences with Bowie, or is he, or is he just like is he is he now just your man? Because that would intimidate most people, wouldn't it? You know. What we do is every night uh, he he loves a wine. It would be a fantastic meal where we would talk about everything. 
everything around the world and, and not so much actual, no gossip stuff, of course, around anyone he'd ever loved and worked with, um, but just everything, you know. Although I did ask him when he was sharing a flat in Berlin with Iggy and Bowie, who did the washing up? And 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 he said Iggy did the washing up. <laughs> and but it, I did. So there was some stuff over the years I'd get out of him. But no, it was more. You know, Brian's mind is incredible. You know, he's chaired conferences at the Hague Parliament for a week on climate change. He's written a paper for Mitsubishi on the future of urban transport in America. He was asked to become the um, Minister of Culture for Barcelona. Um, he has art exhibitions around the world continuously. You know, every time it's like, I'll ring Brian and go, I'm coming to London next week. Do you want to go out for a meal? He goes, I can't come on Thursday, but maybe you want to come with me. I'm giving a lecture to 200 scientists at the Science Museum on the first Apollo landing. And they're playing my album, Apollo, and it's being conducted by a young Korean with an orchestra. And they're showing the first ever handheld footage by Buzz Aldrin oh, and, wow. um, and Neil Armstrong, because oh. they had their own little cameras. Oh my God, on that. I would love to and have been there. And, and would you like to come? I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm there. <laughs> and, and it's like, you know, so every time I ring Brian to, you know, let's go out for a meal, he's doing something bonkers that is like blows your mind, really. And I'll go off with him on an adventure, whatever his adventure is. I, I always say yes, you know, but he's got the most remarkable brain. Everything is an exciting adventure to try and find a solution. Well, to. He, he's got big balls as well, isn't it? Because all of us, you know, feel intimidated by ourselves so often that we can't make that step into doing something quite as profound as Brian thinks he can do and is able to do because he thinks he can do it. I, I, well, you know, we had that other voice on our shoulder quite often saying, but you're correct. Oh, agree. But I think that's with everything. I think that's, you know, that's the 3% bit. It's like we're held back by the 3% that we think we are. We are not who we think we are. We are something much bigger. And if you can tap into that, that's when the great stuff starts happening. And the future of humanity rests on this. If we don't tap into that, it's like, how many ways do we need to kill ourselves? You know, um, I'm actually going to a talk on this at Brian's next day. He's got a guy who's written an amazing book on it. What kind of catastrophe do you want? Um, and he's giving a talk on it at Brian's house. Um, Just don't... So, do not write any songs about those subjects where it ends bad. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Although you probably already have. I know you have. <laughs> I've written post-apocalyptic songs. Um, but, um, yeah, I have. But I've written lots of songs about, you know, trying to change it too. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that one's... <laughs> I, I, I don't think my I'm so powerful that I can bring on the apocalypse. And I, I actually think we seem to have an apocalyptic like tendency it's like the stories that of of apocalypse you can see in the well, films pretty, all the netflix pretty... stuff and the shows that be made about we were drawn to it to, we, we can't we grew stop. up we're under nuclear apocalypse and then that kind of went so then we yeah. dreamed up another one yeah so but uh tim we haven't got long yeah. left so, so i just wanted another... to say something about the the new album which this beautiful reimagining i mean it's gorgeous this reimagining of your songs and i was wondering with your lyrics because you were talking about how things don't 
become clear until like a year or so after you've written them. Now you're going and revisiting songs from years and years and years ago. Do you have a thing, having actually lived your life, or rather a, another long period of your life, there are some of them where you go, oh my God, that was about this. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, Phew. <laughs> it, well, it would also, it would also uh, influence the way you sang it now. And you're probably thinking, I can sing these better emotionally, maybe not as good technically, because as we get older, that's harder. No, I'm I'm better singer now than I'm much better wow. than what I, I actually. Well, you look now. amazing, Jesus Christ! I mean, you're 63 or something. You look at you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, well, it's I dance all the time. You see, I, I, and I do yoga and I meditate and I don't drink. But that's really the only drugs I've ever taken, which are not not uh, since you know teenage whatever. But um, so you know, I I live a very full life. Um, with, you know, I've been married for 27 years and, and have all that going from, which has been amazing. Uh, so, um, but the orchestra reimaginings were incredible for us because we were able to do the slower songs. We didn't have to do the, 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 the bombs, the uplifting love bomb songs all the time. It was, we could really take people into stillness and sing the songs about death and, and 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 all kinds of songs, breakups, and 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 the, the difficulty was not bursting into tears because it's so moving when you hear a gospel choir come in at the end of times. I mean, if you hear one song from that album, listen to sometimes, it, it, it's an amazing reimagining because I didn't think we could improve on it. I have a feeling we might we might have done. What are, what are the constants? Um, Who are the other constants in the band? Because the band changes so much. Who's who's there that you can look in look them in the eye and say, "Wow, we we did come a long way in forty years." Me and Jim have been together forty. Then the rest have nearly been thirty. Um, so it's not you know the newcomers, <laughs> new ones have been thirty. Um, you know, we've got Andy Diagram, who's an astonishing trumpet player. We've got, you know, Adrian Oxel, who's a cello player, guitarist. Saul Davis is is right. He's up one of the writers. Saul Mark, me and Jim Wright. Saul plays violin better than he plays guitar, but he's a great guitar player. Um, so multi-instrumentalist, so we can swap around a lot. And then we've got the two women, Chloe Alper and 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 Debbie and not Houston and they're remarkable. They're bringing a whole new lease of life to us. Um, and and so now we're less afraid to just a love a love bomb, actually, quite frankly. Um, when when the, the gigs are even more ecstatic than they used to be, we've, we've got rid of the final vestiges of the tortured artist idea or that we have to be somehow cool or, you know, and, and we go for the throat now in a, in a more like uplifting, ecstatic way. Showing who we are, you know. It feels like it's more of a collective than a band at times. It is. People come and go. I mean, Adrian's come and left band. Andy's come and left a couple of times, but always on terms, so they come back in again. We get on. We've got good communication right now. It's going really well. It's like the happiest we've ever been, and and surprisingly, the biggest we've ever been. What's wrong with you? Get to court like everyone else. You go through that. Oh no! I know. This, this is the thing about, say, Coldplay. It's like 
it's we're back to culture, which is you can't be too happy. People don't like it if you're too happy. It's like, well, that's not fair, you know. Or great art is miserable. Great art is miserable. But you know, Matisse wasn't miserable. I I've been looking for positive ones recently, and I think Matisse was quite an optimistic. Uh, and I prefer can, his work. To can I can I ask one last question, guy? Unless you you've got a yeah anything. no 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 That's no no please. Do, 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 you sound like I know I know what the answer is to this, but you know, forty years. Do you still have faith? Do you still have faith in what art and songs you can still create, or or does it feel like you know? Am I trapped in a something that's secular? Oh God, no! Absolutely, absolutely, faith. You always feel when we go fishing for a song, you don't know what you're going to catch, and you know whether it's a song that a million millions of people can relate to, or just or or someone who's you know in a really bleak space who says that song saved my life, you know, and it's like you just we just write and you just put it out there and. We love what we do. We could, we could write two albums a year, easily like the Beatles, but there's no demand for it. Um, so, you know, there's no financial structure for it. So it's it, it doesn't happen. But just love love writing. You know, we're continuously writing. We've got hundreds of unreleased material. And because um, that's what we are, that's, that's what we love doing. It's our passion. Thank you. That's fantastic wow. to hear. After all, that, that's brilliant. 40 years, mate. That's great. I know. And, and, and a really tour, great. you're touring, right? You're touring. Touring. Yeah. You're playing shows. Oh, we're playing shows. We're, we're going to redo a couple of few of the orchestra shows, I'm hoping, in November. We're playing at the Acropolis uh, in the Temple of Herodotus. Oh, fantastic. Great. We're going to film, film that. We're flying over an orchestra and choir, which is going to kill us financially. Wow. And we're going to, we're going to, but who can turn down I know, that That's a beautiful. I was there this summer. I just, I saw, or last summer, I saw, I saw this amazing um, sort of theatre space, isn't it? Incredible. They've only started letting artists go in there in the last COVID, and they only let 10 go in a year. So it's a real like we've got to the Acropolis. This is going to be amazing. So we're 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 rolling the dice on that one. Well, we're we're playing somewhere um, similar, aren't we, guy? We are. We're doing Pompeii this summer. So, oh, brilliant! Yeah, thank really. You. With, with My Nick, second, Nick Mason. actually. Did, did you do it at Florey? <laughs> no, I did. I did it with David Gilmore in 2016. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, close. Well, but but yeah, we're yeah, do, we're doing it with Nick Mason with Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets. So it is a Pink Floyd sort of project. Is it? Is it an amazing place to play? It is amazing. We, we did it because very few people were allowed in. So it felt kind of empty, you know, because when Floyd did the film there, it was just them in the amphitheater, you know, in, on the ground. So, yeah, no, it is. It's incredibly special. Although, have you ever played the amphitheater at Taormina in Sicily? No. That's, that, I would say, that that is the yeah, one of yeah. all of them. Yeah, beautiful. Greco-Roman. Get in there, Tim. Get in there, mate. I'll write that down. Tim, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Totally really? inspiring, isn't it, Guy? I mean, I've loved this conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Lovely talking to you, gentlemen. Thank you so much. It's lovely talking to musicians about music and writing and creativity rather than all the other crap we get to talk about in promotion. Lots of love, Tim, and good luck. You too. Take care. God bless. Oh, what a, what a special man. Very special man. No, I just found, I, you know, it was, it's kind of easy for part of me to, for, for my cynical side to pop up uh, during conversations like that. But I found that Tim's personality suppressed my cynicism. And I well, that's actually good. felt inspired. Yeah. No, he, well, he is inspirational. And it's, you know, and it's like, you know, he, he clearly has this amazing 
ongoing relationship with Eno. I mean, it's he's clearly he's a, he's a man who fires off people, and he fires people. He's fired us. Well, you're fired. Uh, waiting, yeah, you're fired. No, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, listen, we have extras, don't we? We do have extras. That, that we put up. Um, Rock on Tours Extra is available to people who uh, subscribe and uh, you get to hear other clips that aren't on the uh, usual podcast or you get to see things or you get to hear us talk about subjects that we don't always talk about uh, and you get... Um, informed about any tickets of live shows which we, we we haven't got any planned right now but we are definitely considering it after guy and i have been on tour probably with with nick absolutely well it's good night from me <laughs> oh it's good night from all of us and from the universe in fact rock on tours is produced by gimme sugar productions for warner music group uk